Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices with ULI. In my day job, I lead Terra Search Partners, a real estate search firm based in San Francisco. In my in-between hours, I'm the host of this podcast series, where we get to explore the work and personal stories of exceptional leaders in the real estate world. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues and friends, and please review us and comment on the podcast on the iTunes store. You can also email comments to leadingvoices at uli.org or me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Today's interview is with Marianne Tai. She is the CEO of CBRE's New York-based Tri-State Region. She has, in numerous years, been CBRE's top producer, including last year, and is consistently recognized as one of the most powerful women in business in New York City. Through our conversation, we talked about her start in the work world as an art historian at the Smithsonian, and then working for Vice President Walter Mondale, and the happenstance in terms of how she got that job, but then also jumped into real estate in her late 30s, a business she'd never actually contemplated before the late 30s, and then her rise through her career and the work she's done in real estate brokerage, again, both as one of the most prolific transactors in the business and also as the CEO of CBRE in New York, both amazing accomplishments. It was a fascinating story. There's lessons from the conversation for anyone in the real estate business, but also people building their career and how to navigate your career and make the kind of, you won't get that kind of success. Maybe you will, (laughs) but you'll learn a lot from hearing the Marianne conversation. You've transacted over 97 million square feet including 14.4 million square feet of development, which is a record in commercial brokerage. You're the eight-time winner of the Real Estate Board of New York's Deal of the Year Award, their Lifetime Achievement Board, the first woman to chair the Real Estate Board of New York, and among Crane's most powerful women, and in the group of the most powerful people kind of forever. I guess if Crane (laughs) says it, it's got to be true. And then keep piling on. You've been CBRE's top producer globally at least four times, 2008, 2011, 2014, and last year. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to talk about how you do it, but what's that mean? How do you do it? You know, I think we do it, all of us do it the same way. You get up in the morning, you put one foot in front of the other and, and sort of see what eventuates. I wish I could tell you that there had been a master plan, but not so. Well, we'll get into the master plan in a minute, and and we'll rummage around through all of those topics, but it's the overall accomplishments and then the individual transactions and the difference you've made are all instructive for us. So this is going to be a fun conversation. But let's start at the beginning, so I'm always curious how people get here. And I gather you grew up in the South Bronx, not 
with money. You went to school in D.C. You majored in art history. You worked at the Smithsonian, and you were the deputy chair of the National Endowment of the Arts, and you worked for Walter Mondale. I want to hear about all, all that, how you got there, and then we'll talk about real estate. Well, you know, it, it really is such a strange thing. I didn't even know what commercial real estate was until I was 36 years old. Wow. I, I had absolutely zero concept of it. I grew up in a true working class family. My father worked in a warehouse and my mother was secretary at the, a local parish rectory. And my highest aspiration was to be the first one in my family to go to college. So I, I lucked into an extraordinary situation very young when by, by almost happenstance, I got hired to work on the White House staff and the Carter Mondale administration. I actually got to work on uh, Vice President Mondale staff. And it was for a girl in her, uh, at that point, I guess I was 27. I had worked at the Smithsonian before that. I'd been a fellow at the Smithsonian and was working on the staff of the Hirshhorn Museum. And when I got this opportunity, it just, it just transformed my view of the world. Anybody who gets the opportunity to work at the White House sees the world in a, a much larger way, even from the most junior position that I occupied. And so it was, tr it was transformative for me and, and certainly transformed my future because <laughs> I actually envisioned myself being an art historian with, you know, an academic appointment of some sort. And I had very clear vision that I was going to write books about art history and that I was going to teach classes about the same and that I was going to have summers off and raise my, raise my multiple children <laughs> with my hypothetical husband. Right. Go um, back for one so, second. You said it happened by happenstance. I want to go back to that word because it's never maybe it is happenstance that gets you to the staff of the white house at age 27 but how did it happen so what had actually happened is that during inauguration week the mall of washington the smithsonian right. institute is turned over to the white house for a, a variety of different celebrations and the hirshhorn had uh, a celebration for an inaugural stamp that was selected from the collection. It was a Joseph Albers painting. It was a red-on-red red painting. I can picture it precisely. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Mondale, who was the first person in, in I, I think anybody could remember, who was part of uh, the White House team, was a champion of contemporary, or best to say, 20th century art. And mm -hmm. so Joan Mondale came to the, to the uh, Hirshhorn to dedicate the stamp. And I was in the audience. I was very excited to be, with, you know, part of the inauguration week. I mean, the whole thing. I'm a Democrat, and I was. This was all sort of just exhilarating for me. And then I proceeded mm -hmm. to sit there and listen to Joan, who I came to call Joan. Joan make a really kind of awful speech. And really? I was, I was. I want to say awful. I mean, she's always, uh, she always was a wonderful woman. But it was the beginning of her public face, so that wasn't something that she was used to doing. And the content, whatever it was, it struck me at whatever at that, at that point. Maybe I was age twenty six, as a real letdown. So I took it upon myself, and I, I think back to so many times in my life when when the right answer has been like, "What the hell?" Mm -hmm. um, to write a letter to Joan's chief of staff, who had come to the Hirshhorn that day. That's how I knew Beth Abel's name. She was Joan uh -huh. Mondale's chief of staff. And I wrote to Joan, excuse me, I wrote to Beth. And I said, hello, I'm an education specialist at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden of the Smithsonian. And I am an enthusiastic supporter of the Carter Mondale administration and would be very happy 
to draft speeches for Mrs. Mondale on subjects related to the arts if this would be helpful to you. I, again, hard copy, uh-huh. sent, it to, sent it off to the White House, didn't hear anything for maybe 10 days. One day at my desk comes a big stack of books from the Library of Congress and a note from Bess Abel that said, Mrs. Mondale needs 20 minutes of remarks for the American Crafts Council on American Crafts. Please prepare. Wow. Um, hadn't, hadn't spoken to a single soul, hadn't done uh-huh. a thing, knew nothing about American Crafts, nothing. So I proceeded to, you know, sort of read in the books. I can't say I read the books, but I read in them. And then mm-hmm. I sat at my handy old typewriter, I remember in my uh, home, and thought, now, okay, I'm the wife of the vice president. What would I say about American crafts? Banged it out, sent it over. By virtual return mail. Another right. set of books from the Library of Congress, boom. And so this went on for six weeks, okay? And when I tell you I was doing these remarks at least once a week, maybe some weeks, twice a week. No one ever spoke to me. One day, a man calls, Mike Berman, uh-huh. or rather his secretary called, and said, hi, this is Walter Mondale, the vice president's, actually the vice president's chief of staff. He'd like you to come into the White House to talk to him. And best job interview I ever had. Ready for this? I go to the White House, uh, all excited. Mike is in the White House. Most of the staff, you know, is in mm-hmm. uh, the old executive office building. And I come into the tiny cubicle of an office that is Mike Berman's office, and I sit down all perky, ready to be talking to him. And he says, uh, smoking a cigar, talking on the phone, he says, you know how to hang pictures? And I say, "Um, yes. And he says, you see those pictures behind you? Right immediately behind me was a, a couch, a sofa with a lot of pictures like Mike shaking hands with like Hubert Humphrey. And he says, can you hang those for me? So I look at him and I say, uh, I don't have any of the tools. He said, we can get you that. Can you hang them? And I say, sure. And in he brings some guy, who, you know, carpenter on the staff of the White House. And right. for the next hour and change, I proceed to work with the, the carpenter to hang Mike's pictures. And when I'm finished, I come back, sit down at his gesture. He gestures for me to sit down. And I sit down and he says, how much do you make? And I say, I'm a GS-12. Right. And he uh-huh. says, how much money is that? And whatever, I don't even know the answer today. It's 14, maybe it's probably 12,000 right. and change. I actually have to pull my government card out of my purse to tell him what the number is. I didn't even know how much I made. Mm-hmm. And he says, I can offer you 45,000 a year. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. Just like that, what would I be doing? Picture he says, He says, you would be the head of the White House, what the, what was the title? Cultural whatever, and that means you'd represent the administration on the boards of the Smithsonian. When I tell you, I, I sat there like my mouth open, and I'm like, really? And he says, yeah, and, and when we ask you to do stuff for Mrs. Mondale, you'd do that too. And I'm like, wow, this, this sounds great. Can I think about it? And he said, sure, but let me know tomorrow. And I ran out of the White House. I called my parents. I said, I'm going to work in the White House. Crazy though this sounds, right? Uh Years later, years later, we had a reunion of the the Carter Mondale staff. And among among the things that came up, Mike said, I said to Mike, can I just ask you, that was the nuttiest interview I ever had. What the hell was that about? He (laughs) said, well, we knew, we already checked you out. We'd seen your work ethic. We'd seen the work that you produced. 
you, you had all the right stuff. I didn't need to ask you that. I just wanted to find out if you were a snob. I wanted oh. to know if you were going to be the kind of person who turned your nose up at something. And he said, and you answered that perfectly, and it, it all worked out. On the picture hanging. That is a that's an unbelievable story, which is interesting because you diminished it and you kind of ran right by it at the beginning of the conversation as happenstance. That was no happenstance. You worked your butt off to make that thing happen and you took opportunity. Well, I I can only say to you, it's probably if there was a test for what makes you a broker, some of us, you could actually look at that whole series of filters and realize that those are good tests for people who don't have a job assignment. Maybe that's the best way to Absolutely true. Absolutely true. My son-in-law hangs pictures for the Smithsonian, so (laughs) there we have it. He does. (laughs) I must tell you, the job of being an art installer to this day is a source of, of, I have huge respect for because I actually understand a little bit about it. Uh, I bet you do. It's a great thing. I'm going to give you, uh, by the way, I'm going to give you a funny Mike Berman footnote. At the same party where I asked him about picture hanging, some of the folks at the table said, while we're asking, Marianne, we have to ask you a question. In the Carter-Mondale administration, when you agreed to become part of the administration, you had to sign a document that said you would not work for anyone who received federal funds under your direction for three years after you left the administration. And I signed it. And... Shortly thereafter, after I worked in the White House only for about a little more than a year, and then I became deputy chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, in which capacity I signed 100% of the grant letters. So at the moment I was signing those letters, I knew that my career was going to have to take a break from the art world for at least three years. And so years later, at, at and, that, and by the way, that's what led me to start the A&E channel and then ultimately led me to real estate. So years later at this party... The folks at the table said, Marion, we always wanted to ask you, how come you didn't apply for a waiver for the three-year rule? Mm-hmm. And I laughed because I said, talk about a good Catholic girl. Who knew there was a waiver for a pledge you made? Exactly. I thought, you know, you signed on for it. You're done. You do it. Apparently, I was the only one of the group who actually, t- everybody said we couldn't have gotten a job if we hadn't applied for a waiver. Well, and I think waivers are kind of popular there these days but we won't go there let's keep let's keep let's keep talking we're going to need to get to real estate but before we get to real estate the other you use the word happenstance and you use the word transformative so what was transformative about working with a vice president i i think simply the ability to see the world in a a way that made you appreciate the scale of the world how many different places and and types of people and so many different issues, but also to give you a kind of fearlessness about people and hierarchy. You know, when you're testifying before Congress, as I did at age 27, 28, 29, and you understand what that is, when you are in regularly in the presence of the vice president and frequently Mm -hmm. in the presence of the president of the United States at that age, you realize that people are just people. There's, there's nothing, you know, when you come from a small working class family in the Bronx, you think that there are all these barriers between different levels of society, et cetera. You know, I didn't go to an Ivy league school, therefore I can't be as smart as this one or that. All all these uh, things that you 
put into your mind that when you experience something like like a White House experience, you realize how how human we all are, how how there's no need to be in fear of encountering any person. Nothing should be alien to you in, in, in that respect, that people are just people. It's totally true. They get into extraordinary circumstances, which we, we talk about all the time, but they, everyone is, they do the same things. Yes. Yes. So let, let's move on and, and tell, talk about moving to New York and maybe arts and entertainment, but how the heck did you jump from that into real estate and into brokerage at that? So the A&E thing really was the direct outcome of the three-year hiatus I was required to take. Uh, 1981 was the dawn of the cable age. I wanted, I was, by that time I was married to a man who I am happily married to today, but he lived in New York and I was living in D.C. with our son. And so the goal was to live together. And I was fortunate enough to get uh, hired by ABC Video Enterprises, which was their the place from which emanated ESPN, the uh, the original History Channel, and certainly A and E. And my role was to create a cultural channel, which at, at its inception was called Arts Ampersand Entertainment. Uh-huh. I wrote those words on a yellow pad, and so it began. And so I was doing that for a little bit, and you know, it was really fascinating, terrific people. But I discovered, to my amazement, that in order to make the numbers work, to make the budgets work, I wasn't doing anything in New York. I was on the road, you know, three weeks out of every month. And one of the goals was to actually live with my husband and son. And so it was on a buying trip to Italy. I was there buying television from Rai Television, which is, you know, the public television of Italy. And I was in Venice and at the rest, at the hotel I was staying at, very nice hotel back in the day, you could live very well if you were at ABC, was folks at a table nearby. They, I was dining alone because I was actually heading home the next morning. Helen and Joe Bernstein, and they introduced themselves of Greenwich and Palm Beach. And mm-hmm. they invited me to join them for dessert. And we discovered we were flying home on the same flight. And so we agreed to share the Vaporetto to the airport. And at the dessert, Joe told me he was a retired commercial real estate broker. This Again, I'm 36 years old. Yeah, this of is course. the first moment I hear this. And I say, what does a commercial real estate broker do? Thinking to myself, maybe he fills stores with, with tenants. I don't, uh-huh. I, I, again, I, I, knew, I knew so nothing about this. I'm not even sure I knew the word tenant. And he proceeded to describe to me what he did, which was you know, pretty grand stuff. His claim to fame was he had assembled the site under what was then the New York tele- Telephone Building at, four, at 42nd and 6th Avenue. He personally owned that ground lease. So he had done good work for himself. He was, he was a one-man practitioner. Anyway, we go to the airport together when we get to the airport, Joe says, I'll pay the Vaporetto driver, and he proceeds to pull out his lira and start to pay his lira back then. And I had been spending the prior three days negotiating purchase in lira. So I was facile with the the, um, What's the lira? exchange rate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I realized that the Vaporetto guy was bilking him on the exchange. So, you know, I tapped the guy on the Vaporetto guy on the shoulder, and I reached into his hand and pulled out the correct dollars. 
and handed them to Joe and sort of waved my finger at the Vaporetto driver as in, don't cheat this man. And Joe looked at me like with wonder in his eyes and he said, you'd be fabulous in my old business. (laughs) Totally true. all the way home on the plane, he told me what his business was. So that was the beginning of my interest in commercial real estate. Uh-huh. And then how soon thereafter did you join what was then E.S. Gordon? So it was in the spring that I met Joe. And he arranged for me to meet with three different people, one of whom actually was Harry Helmsley, who was at that point no longer sort of, you know, mentally with us. So I didn't. I never met him. One of whom was Matt Stakem, Darcy Stakem's father, who a lovely gentleman who ta- told me and introduced me to Darcy, who must have been like twenty something years old then, and said, "See, even women can be brokers." And the last person was Seymour Durst, Douglas's father. And Seymour Durst, being the total gent he always was, took me to lunch at the Algonquin. Talked to me about my life and whatever, listened, and then said to me, uh, if I were your age starting out in this business, I would be a broker. And then he introduced me to some brokerage firms, and I went and met with each of the ones he introduced me to, and one of them was Edward S. Gordon. And as soon as I went into Eddie's office, or at both his office and his environment, the larger office, I thought, this is the place for me, because... It was kind of mayhem in a, not a bad way, just the energy of the place was so clear. And I also could tell almost immediately that this was not a, a hierarchical place, that you were going to have to like work your way up the ladder of whatever, that this was really the kind of place where if you could do the business, you could do whatever you wanted. And it was a pretty accurate assessment, actually, of ESG. So Eddie didn't want to hire me because he told me in his wonderful practical way, he said, look, your father worked in a a warehouse. Your mother works for the church, the Catholic church. It's not like they ever talked about business at the dinner table. And you got trained in art. He said, "I, I don't see that you could be a success in this business. So I went away thinking I have to figure out how to get this guy to hire me. And in those years on the side to make additional money, I was writing freelance for various publications. And one day I'm at my desk at ABC and I get a call from somebody who's starting a new magazine called Manhattan Inc. And Uh asked me if I wanted to write an article for what would be the issue that they would use to acquire advertisers. So I said, it popped into my head. I said, you know what? I'd like to write a profile of Edward S. Gordon. The guy said, isn't he a real estate guy? How does that connect to you? I said, yeah, he's a real estate guy, but he's very colorful, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the guy lets me write the article. Eddie, I tell Eddie, in order to write the article, I have to follow him around for, you know, hours at a time. So I follow Ed Gordon around. We have exchanges, et cetera. The article comes out in October of 1984. Uh-huh. And he hires me in November of 1984. Is that that happenstance um, thing again? Yes. And <laughs> I can tell you that just before Eddie's death, he wrote me the sweetest note. I, I still have it. And, and attached the note to the article. And this is, you know, almost 20 years later. Attaches the note to the article. And he, he wrote, this is still the best thing that's ever been written about this company. And I know that the article... He understood that if I could understand enough to write that article, I right. could understand how to do the business. 
It's an amazing story. It, it's funny. Two things. One is we've talked about happenstance. I, I've used the word serendipity all the time because I found the part of my career that all came together for me via happenstance at age 40. You did it at age 36. I take meetings with people. Actually, I avoid the meetings with people who are 36 trying to totally change their careers because as a recruiter, I can't help them very much. I call it the chasm. They have to jump across some very big chasm to get into a different kind of business. And yes. and you did it. And you're, frankly, the most successful broker you know, in the universe. So therefore, it can really work. It can happen. Did you go into a commission sales job from the A&E network? So here's, again, what was enormously lucky. Yes, I did. Uh, I must tell you, Eddie did give me a draw. I remember this, $40,000, the biggest draw I think ESG ever gave. Uh-huh. But it was not, uh, th- at that point, my husband was in surgical training. I had a child in private school in New York. None of it, you know, it didn't compute. However, right. when I left A&E, uh, the boss of the division, her, is a great man named Herb Granith, he thought I was having some kind of mental, you know, I, I wanted to become a real estate, you know. So he said, look, look, this may not work out. So how about we take a piece of what your old job was, you continue to do it, and we'll keep you on retainer. And my old job included an idea I had, uh, connections I'd made in the arts endowment years, where we invested in Broadway theater for ABC. And so I, I remained doing that, which is a good job because I could do it at night, right. you know, because the hours are different, so to speak. So Herb paid me $100,000 a year, and he ended up paying it to me for 10 years before I finally went in and said, you know, I think this real estate thing is going to stick, and I feel guilty <laughs> taking this money. So that's how I tidied myself over to be able to sustain uh-huh. Um, the, the the run up because it's very hard, very hard to be able to, especially at that age where you actually have obligations. You know, it's one thing if you're 22, right? You can you know live with your mom and dad. It was very hard, but it was actually the A and E link and and Herb himself who enabled my real estate career. Absolutely. So let's we're, we're going to have to move on because I want to hear some about the present, but we'll stick for a few more minutes with that time, because then you join this, and I know what that floor looks and feels like. It's it's a bunch of guys, but you partnered with another woman. So talk about getting started in this business and then partnering with her and then how that got you to the place where it started to work. So I must say that I was aware of Carol in the course of writing the article about Ed Gordon. And he spoke glowingly of her, and she was at the top of her game in 84. And I'm certain that one of my attract among the reasons I was attracted to the old ESG, is that it was the only place that actually had a serious woman player. And in the beginning, of course, I had no connection to her whatsoever because I brought nothing to the table. But about 18 months in, I managed, and it's a, 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 it would be another digression, I managed to persuade her to allow me to work on something that she was involved in. Mm-hmm. And as, in the course of doing that, she and I became very close, and I learned a huge amount from her. And in a matter of a relatively short period of time, I would say say that was 86 so I would say by, certainly by 1990, we were full partners. 
I, I was fortunate enough to enter the business in the era of the, the dawning of the RFP process, you know? Uh-huh. And because back in the day, it consisted of lots of brokers slinging ideas to people like, yeah, you want to see the space on Third Avenue, et cetera, et cetera. And when, just as I was coming in, it was becoming a more corporate type environment and and corporations were buying the services of commercial brokerage in a different way. You were competing in a different way for their business. And the nature of the business had a, a consulting component to it as well as a, a traditional street brokerage. So I was obviously able to write these proposals and I was able to present these proposals. And so I was able to make a big leap. I got involved in in business that was way beyond my real estate knowledge per se, but I was able to elicit from real estate pros in my own company. If I was writing the proposal, I'd say, sit down with them and say, "So tell me how you how you go about doing this." And if you know, I would then be able to put it together into an actual offering and then able to stand up and parrot it in a way that got me to the table, basically. And so so it began. I mean, in 1991, Carol, Marty Turchin, and me in the most junior position, we did the largest deal in the United States when we sold 550 Madison Avenue from, sold it, our colleagues of ours represented AT&T, but we represented Sony in the purchase of that building. Uh-huh. And if you think about it, I came into the business in November of 84. So to do the largest, to be part of, and I want to be very clear, you know, I was carrying everybody's stuff. To be at the table, that's the best way to put it, to be at the table with the largest deal that was done in 91, a dark, dark year for real estate in New York, you know, was an enormous education, privilege, et cetera. So uh-huh. I've also had the privilege of moving Sony out of 550, as I did, I don't remember, maybe a year before last. And now, I, with my colleagues Howard Fiddle and Scott Gottlieb, we are now the agents on behalf of Chelsea and Oleon filling up 550 Madison, or we will be filling it up once it's, you know, sort of rejuvenated. What it sounds like, it's interesting, as you tell the story, Five years before, you might not have been able to make that transition and cross that chasm as successfully as you did. And you brought a skill set, articulation, ability to talk and write that may not have been normal in the business, but was all of a sudden required. Exactly. And and that's that's the piece of great good fortune. You know, the thing when people are making transitions in their careers, it, it's it's so funny how you can take a skill set that you don't necessarily think is directly relevant. And yet when you get into the situation, you come to realize how so much translates. And indeed, I I once read a New Yorker article about the issue of taking skills from one discipline and applying them to another. Uh And they made the point that if you were looking to sort of rejuvenate your professional life, that was the best way to go about it because what was really relevant is how long you spent at a particular thing. In, in other words, in terms of sort of ceasing to have creative ideas or whatever, you were doing it too long. Mm-hmm. But if you could pick up all those skill sets and bring them to a new arena, then then you were able to once again become creative because you were applying it in a different way. 
And that's certainly what happened for me with uh, with brokerage. So let's talk about a transaction and then we'll move on a little bit to the rest of your life. But I, I'm curious to talk about one transaction. And a few weeks ago, and it was just released the other day, I did a similar interview with Marianne Gilmartin. Uh-huh. And I think your life intersects with her maybe many times, but on the New York Times headquarters transaction, which she talked about in the podcast is her signature deal, and it's one of yours. So maybe talk about that one and maybe both how it transformed New York and then kind of selecting the right team and just what it feels like to to make that kind of a difference in, in the city of New York. So the New York Times is something that that it took a very long time to gestate. This again, talk about how different phases of your life interact. In 1990, I joined the board of the new 42nd Street, which was then charged with reinventing the nonprofit theaters that were on the street. And it was at that time that I spent an enormous amount of time and for, for a number of years in Times Square. And in observing Times Square and understanding Times Square redevelopment as, as deeply as I came to understand it, I began to realize that an opportunity could exist for the New York Times because I had also – the chairman of our board, the new 42nd Street Board, is Marion Sulzberger High – or was Marion Sulzberger High School, uh, mm-hmm. the Sulzberger family. And so a number of our meetings took place in the old New York Times building, 229 West 43rd Street. So I knew what a completely decrepit building it was. And through Marion, I met her brother, Punch Salzberger, and actually had a hilarious lunch with him with Ed Gordon. I'll never forget it. And Punch basically said, you know what? This isn't for me. This is when my son Arthur takes over. You can have this conversation with him. So years pass, and I begin to have the conversation with Arthur and and actually Arthur's cousin, Michael Golden, who was vice chairman, was our our day-to-day point person on the Times. And my thesis to Arthur and Michael, and again, being able to, if you will, pitch this idea at a level where you could execute. One One of the things I always tell my own colleagues is you're not, you're wasting your pearls if you end up giving them to somebody who can't actually execute on them. But I had with these two men, people who had the power to make something happen, and I pitched them on the fact that their building was going to be, uh, what was happening is the printing was leaving the Times. Mm -hmm. Remember they always printed in the basement? And they were moving it out to College Park in Queens. And and the building was going to be relisted on the tax rolls from being an industrial building to being an office building. And in that Mm. moment, the taxes on the building were going to go they were more than tripling. Right. And, you know, the times today and then uh, existed on the tightest of margins. So it, to try and encapsulate this deal is very hard to do, but the, the sum and substance of it was we're in a moment of transformation. The building needs everything. The building was a dump. I'll give you one example. I remember Punch said to us, you know, this building costs us nothing. We have no debt on it. Mm, it's so it's right. cheap. We can afford to live here. I got Michael and Arthur to allow us to go through the building and quantify what it costs to live in the building. Right. One example only. There, there was in those days three shifts every day, 365 days a year. Remember, the building's never dark right. of iron workers. Why? Because the newest electrical closet in the building, dated from 1949, 
And some of the electrical closets were from 1913. No parts existed for any of them. So these iron workers were on standby every day, 24 hours a day, to make a part or repair a part if something happened. That is one illustration for you of the condition this building was in. So after we quantified it, and we told them what it cost them to actually be there. We showed them that they were actually paying something like a Class B office building rent just in operating expenses. And then when we added on the new taxes, we said, listen, you could, and you're in way more space than you need. You could do X, Y, and Z. So we did all the numbers. We showed them, and we came up with some ideas. And they said, forget about it. We're going to just renovate and stay here. So we had estimated what it would cost to renovate, and they didn't believe our numbers. That was another important point here. They right. said we were too high. So I think about 15, 18 months passed after we had an, an amiable parting where they said, you know what, we're just going to stay here, you know, too crazy. When Michael Golden called me one day, and he said, can you come by and see Arthur and me? And I came by, and he said, we've just finished renovating two of the newsroom floors. We spent X which that amount was larger than our estimate of what it was going to cost and way larger than their estimate. And he said, and nobody's happy with the result. So we'd like to task you with going out and finding a new home for us. And here are the only requirements we have. It has to be in Times Square. It has to have a floor plate as big as our largest floor plate because we like having the newsroom on, you know, the way it's stacked today. And and the cost has to be the equivalent or lower of what a renovation of this building would be. I said, oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and thus was born the New York Times building. Marion Gilmartin, by the way, came in later because when we were able to get the extraordinary opportunity we got to develop Site 8A of, of the Times Square redevelopment, we had to to build the entire envelope of space, the 1.6 million square feet, because that was the requirement, and they didn't Times didn't need anything like that. So we needed a partner, and when we did the contest, which we ran the contest for both the architect as well as for the developer, right. and Forest City, I would have said to you, was the dark horse. I think we started out with a list of something like 19 possible developers, uh-huh. ended up with a short list of four, and ultimately, Marianne led, well, I think, one of the great presentations I've ever seen that got them the, the partnership the, and the assignment. And as I say, it, it took years to make it happen. But in 2001, we completed it, and the, and the building has turned out to be a huge blessing to the Times. It's a great story. One of the things that it illustrates, you think deals are made quickly. Thinks deals happen overnight. You've described a deal that took a a lifetime of relationships and interactions that weren't about the deal. They were about just knowing what was going on and then building trust, building relationships, doing the studies that you did to understand the real numbers. That's how business is really done. I I think to accomplish anything of significance, certainly in New York, it takes years. And, and one of the great pieces of good fortune for me, and the reason I've been able to do so many of them, is because I've been, I've been working for years and years on different things, and I can afford to wait because I've got other things that are going on. So I can afford to, you know, I can, I can put in six years to try and make something happen. 
where most people, you know, wouldn't be able to commit that, that amount of time. But that's what the latter part of my career has given me. It's given me the flexibility to, to actually mm-hmm. do that. Excellent. I think, you know, younger people are going to mix it up and do both. But I know the same through my career is you have to have a, about a zillion balls in the air where you're doing a lot of work for free. But it's those yeah. zillion balls in the air and the free stuff that makes the relationships and the long view happen. And it does take a long view to have anywhere near the kind of success you've had. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And let's talk about maybe one last subject because we've missed your personal life. You started the conversation when you were in D.C. You had a husband who was in surgery to, in, in medical school and that mm-hmm. you're still married. And that's not easy to do over this period of time. And kind of talk about having dual careers and making that work. So I, I joke all the time when I, not so much a joke, when I give uh, talks before women's groups and I say, I highly recommend being married to a doctor. You know, it, I said the, the, the single most important career decision you're going to make is who are you married to? Because totally. before before David Hidalgo, I was married to somebody else and I would never have gotten anywhere in my life married to this fellow. I said, so why does a doctor make a fantastic husband for a really committed career woman? I said, the first thing is doctors are king of their domains. They don't need you to be fluttering around them all the time because that happens at work every day. The second thing is that doctors, no matter how late you come home, they're coming home later than you are because whatever is happening, they have to deal with. And, and last but not least, they have unbelievable good perspective. You know, for my husband, if no blood is involved, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> he, I, he often jokes with me that when I tell him a deal is dead as a doornail, it's three weeks from closing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can tell you that he has been uh, not only the great love of my life, which he was first and foremost and remains, but also he has been my champion. I mean, I've never felt anything other than you know, the the reason I found CBRE is I was telling him how unhappy, you know, repeatedly how unhappy I was at, in the environment at Insignia. And he said to me, you know, you've got a decision to make. The decision is, do you want to keep doing this work? And if the decision's yes, then you've already answered the question. You're going to have to do it somewhere else. And I, I when he said it to me, it was so chilling because I was comfortable. But he was right. It's hard to leave. It's hard to move out. It's hard. Come on. Change is hard. So last question, what's next? Where where do you go from here? So I I have to say to you, I, I, you know, I hate when people say to me, they actually don't tend to say it to me. My husband says he gets it a lot. You know, are you thinking of retiring? I'm so crazy about what I do. Mm -hmm. And so for me, for example, I've been Larry Silverstein's agent from the get-go at the Trade Center. I'm not stopping until we finish and fill the World Trade Center. We will do that. I have so many things within. The city is so rich with needs, (laughs) let me put it that way, and opportunity that I see them. and And the flip side of it is it takes a very long time to make things happen in New York. Right. And And it also takes an understanding of how to make things happen in New York. So I've got the second part. I, I've come to learn, not, no one can do this infallibly, but 
you know, you tell me that this is something worth achieving and I'm going to be part of it. I'm going to figure out, again, not my, you know, my batting average isn't a thousand, but it's pretty darn good. And I, I have all this capital I've built up that I'm able to deploy. You know, I made up my mind long ago when I became the head of the real estate committee for the Archdiocese of New York that the air rights that were tracked over St. Patrick's Cathedral had to be monetized someday. We're getting there. It's, I've been at it now certainly at least five years, uh, and I believe it will happen, and that will be an enormous boon to the cathedral. So, you know, it's things like that that s- sort of fascinate me and mm-hmm. excite me and make me want to make me excited about uh, going to work. And also remember that because of going to CBRE and because of my role, I was able to create culturally and actually physically the environment I want to work in. So it's pretty wonderful. Last comment to this is uh, I, I'm a believer that, well, so many people I talk to in the real estate business say what you say. It's hard to leave because it only gets better. You get more traction, satisfaction, make more of a difference. It just builds on itself. Yes. And people in the yes. real estate business have the opportunity to just love with a passion what they get to do. Yes. You know, it's so funny because it's not anything I would ever have picked for myself, you know, when I was a teenager or a college student or anything. Had no idea. But now that I'm in it, I, I, I honestly can't imagine doing anything else. Happy you're here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for I this think- trip down memory lane. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.